Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. Thanks everyone for joining. Um, I'm Susan Mitchell, um, one of the Impact Collaboratory um, principal investigators, and I'm happy to be hosting this bot podcast. It's a follow-up to our Grand Rounds, uh, which happened last week, and that was called Implementation in Ongoing AD, ADRD, EPCTs, or Pragmatic Trials in Different Healthcare Settings Using Real Examples. And the Grand Rounds really got into the nitty-gritty of implementation challenges in these types of trials, and I'm joined today by four of the presenters of that Grand Rounds, Ab Brody, Jessica Colburn, Ellen McCready, and Brian Mittman. Um, the and uh, at the Grand Rounds, Ab and Jessica and Ellen presented their implementation experiences for an actual EPCT that they're leading for people living with dementia, and Brian provided some extra expert commentary. So let's uh, dive a little deeper into these issues. Hi, everybody. Glad, glad you're with us. My first question's for Jessica. Um, so... Jessica, one of the unique challenges we're um, becoming very aware of in our supportive trials for dementia populations is the dyadic nature of the participants, namely the person living with dementia and their care partners. And this challenge really impacts every aspect of a pragmatic trial design from recruitment to analysis, but it's especially pertinent for implementation challenges um, and especially for advanced care planning interventions, because we have to consider how and when to involve just the patient, just the care partner, or both. So can you speak to how you approach this implementation challenge in your trial? Sure, happy to comment on that. So the trial um, that I discussed last week is our trial on advanced care planning in primary care, working with older adults with and without cognitive impairment and their care partners. And in the pilot, um, we actually only enrolled older adults who had care partners to participate because we wanted to test the feasibility of how well that would work. Um, and we found actually that both our participants and their care partners really um, appreciated the opportunity to discuss these important issues. And in fact, we had good uptake in the trial. So even for for people with cognitive impairment of the 12 people who we thought had cognitive impairment, 10 of them ended up participating. We are now in the process of rolling out the pilot. And so in the, or in the pragmatic trial and in the trial, we will enroll people whether or not they have a care partner, though the encouragement is going to be to involve the care partner for several parts of the intervention. One for the advanced care planning conversation, but also for the agenda setting checklist, which we use to help um, older adults and their care partner plan for a visit and how each of them will be involved and how they each have different concerns or questions for the provider, um, and also the proxy access to the medical record. So we found in the pilot that because of those different pieces of the involvement, that that really helped the care partners see that um, advanced care planning is one part of the continuum of being involved in helping someone with their care. When you thought about um, who you were going to send the uh, information about advanced care planning, et cetera, was there much uh, 
um, consideration or complications relating to deciding whether um, a certain patient with dementia was able to understand and receive that information? We did have some some information with that related to training of our facilitators, so helping the um, facilitators become comfortable with assessing when they were talking to a participant, whether they had capacity to understand the conversation and involvement of the care partner there, as well as what to do if um, the participant themselves, the older adult themselves, could participate quite a bit in the conversation versus not very much in the conversation, how to um, kind of do that back and forth with the dyad since they each have their own concerns. And even in early stages of dementia, or especially in early stages, many older adults can participate themselves in the conversation. And so also there was training for the facilitators as part of the original Respecting Choices curriculum we use as to what to do if there are differences in opinion and what to do if the differences in opinion or thought seem to relate in part to the patient not fully understanding the conversation. And then any of those nuances often go back to the the provider, the physician or nurse practitioner to to help sort out um, the capacity piece for the older adult. So that's great. I've seen uh, a few applications come in through IMPACT that are trying to evaluate advanced care planning interventions um, like yours in different settings. And I I think um, don't underestimate the challenges you've overcame. And so there might be some learning that you can give to the community about how you approach this um, dyadic issue in your implementation. Well, thank you for saying so. I think this is one of the things we're most excited about with this is the involvement of thinking of them in a dyad and thinking of that dyad partnership uh, across the continuum of assisting with care. So the advanced care planning, but also as part of working towards advanced care planning, that it isn't only end-of-life care that the care partner is helping with, and so how to make decisions all along that way and how to help primary care teams partner better with care partners in that way. Great, thanks. So I'm going to turn uh, the next question to Brian. So at Impact, we've really been struggling with the question of what types of interventions we feel are ready for um, funding through our pilot program. And one of the main concerns has been the challenge associated with assuring a proposed complex or multi-component intervention can be uh, implemented with fidelity. In fact, one solution suggested to us was that we really just focus and select interventions that are not complex, but rather simple interventions like nudge type interventions. So can you comment with this? And is this a reasonable approach or is dementia care so complex it has to be addressed with complex solutions and interventions? So uh, it's an important question. And uh, I would um, uh, lean in the direction of the latter that, um, uh, you know, we do need complex interventions, uh, often multi-level. And obviously there's a trade-off, as uh, you've suggested, that, um, uh, and, and sometimes I'll um, view this as akin to the uh, story of the drunk uh, looking for his or her keys under the lamppost. Um, uh, uh, you know, they were not lost there. We know that that's uh, not the right place to look, but um, there's light, so it's easy. Uh, and, and that's akin to this situation because we uh, know how to both design, deploy, and more importantly, evaluate in a rigorous manner, simple, single component interventions. And so we have a bias towards trying to find those solutions. Uh, but, um, you know, in my view, both in dementia as well as many other clinical domains, uh, those interventions are simply too little too late. Um, uh, they don't address the full spectrum of barriers and constraints 
and influences on the desired practices, and therefore they're not likely to um, achieve the change that we desire. So, um, you know, in my view, we're sort of stuck with uh, the need to uh, both uh, design and deploy and, again, uh, evaluate uh, multi-level, multi-component uh, complex interventions uh, that are um, uh, adaptable uh, and to uh, do so in a way that um, sort of redefines the way that we think about fidelity uh, rather than thinking about fidelity to a manualized intervention with the details laid out in a, a very um, a, a highly detailed manner. Uh, uh, we need to uh, step back a bit and think about the core functions or the purposes of each component of the intervention and think about uh, the kinds of adaptations or local tailoring that might be permitted uh, so that, for example, a, a patient education uh, activity uh, that might be scripted uh, uh, in a typical manualized intervention, we may want to think about alternative ways of achieving those educational goals and allowing for more flexibility or more tailoring uh, to provide written forms of education or physician interventions, uh, uh, nurse uh, educational interventions, uh, in some cases peer interventions and others. Uh, so identifying the core functions and the purpose in uh, uh, trying to achieve fidelity to those core functions while allowing for the local uh, tailoring uh, may be a way of essentially uh, having it both ways. Uh, you know, there may be rare instances where a simple intervention might be sufficient and might address the dominant barrier or barriers or constraints. Uh, but again, as I indicated, generally speaking, uh, these problems are sufficiently complex that we need to um, uh, deploy interventions that address patient and caregiver considerations, uh, staff considerations, organizational, oftentimes community, uh, regulatory, fiscal. Uh, and, and we're sort of forced to um, uh, grapple with the complexities of the, the complex interventions. Great, thanks. I mean, that it's, it's a very interesting um, dilemma in some ways. When, when I had a conversation with a colleague uh, who knows a lot about EPCTs, and we were commenting about how so many of them turn out negative. And in fact, uh, this person's view on that is that some of them are so light touch that they really um, don't get at the issue. So I guess um, just turning to very simple interventions doesn't really sound like um, a solution. So thank you, Brian. Dr. Brody, so um, your trial is very interesting because it's one of the very few EPTs I know about that takes place in a community hospice healthcare system. Um, a lot of them more have been done in nursing homes or hospital settings. So what do you consider some of the unique implementation challenges in this particular setting for pragmatic trials? So I think when you move out into community-based settings, uh, I, I have one in hospice and one in home care, but I think you could probably say the same for a lot of disseminated primary care practices, for instance, is that the entire organizational infrastructure is different. The healthcare clinicians and others within those organizations are all disseminated, so you can't necessarily use the same sort of methods of peer-to-peer -peer contact that you would expect. And then it varies even within those groups. So for instance, hospices, by the nature of what they do, have, for the most part, weekly or biweekly interdisciplinary team meetings which is a pretty good intervention and inflection point. And home care doesn't really have that same infrastructure, nor do primary care clinics. And so I think this idea of how you work with a disseminated group of clinicians or 
or uh, staff that are not going to be in contact with each other frequently plays a huge role because there's less mentorship that can be provided or um, touch points for reminders or modeling. And I think that becomes a huge issue. And then once you move out of academia, I think the other issue is you run into uh, organizations that are not necessarily used to doing research. And that can be a good thing because they can be very energetic and engaged and excited to be participating in something different. But there's also certain lack of understanding that can occur or lack of capacity to carry out certain portions. And so I think there there are some really great pros in terms of this is where a lot of people are. But at the same time, there there are some uh, infrastructure and uh, experience issues that do need to be overcome that aren't necessarily the same as academic medical centers or nursing homes where you know, there are uh, a lot of people congregated in one place. Well, um, I would assume that since you're uh, ground, doing groundbreaking work in this area, you are um, setting up the field for doing these um, types of um, integrated studies and hospice systems in the community um, and will be a great service for those who continue to do research in that area. Yeah, there have been a few others, not many in Alzheimer's disease and, and related dementias, but there are so many opportunities, especially as we move towards more home-based and community-based care options to get out of the, the academic medical center. And it also helps with issues of uh, diversity and equity because you can reach populations that may not be uh, involved at academic medical centers or being seen at academic medical centers. And so I think there's a huge opportunity to reach people where they are, which can have huge uh, uh, influence on the system. And it's just figuring out how to do it the, the best way within those settings. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, and last, I'll ask uh, Dr. McCready a question. Um, I think, Ellen, you're probably among the group, probably the furthest along or pretty far along in your trial, uh, the music and memory uh, trial. And so um, I'm going to ask you that extremely painful question. In hindsight, if you could redesign or adapt your implementation strategy now, uh, what would you do differently? And I know Brian's a, a big proponent of learning and adapting. So uh, with that in mind. Yeah, we have plenty of lessons learned um, already. Or we've completed the first parallel trial and we're planning to complete the second um, later this year. Um, some of the biggest learnings uh, are really related to the implementation strategy and the engagement of nursing staff, which came up during the Q&A after the talk, after the grand rounds. Um, and this is a challenge. This is a really tough nut to crack. Um, and really it's involved that frontline nursing staff and nursing staff in general are not taught to use these non-pharmaceutical interventions. They're not trained to, um, to think about music and art and sensory interventions as alternatives to using medications with patients. And so it's how do you really find those champions within an organization and how do you engage them um, and how do you give staff the proper training all the way down to frontline staff to start thinking, noticing early signs of agitation differently and reacting differently. Um, I 
think that what we would have done differently is really had to be more focused on CNA training as an intervention. Um, there's some CNA specialization coming out, um, CNA um, certified nursing assistant, and the frontline staff in nursing homes. And um, there's some, you know, certifications coming out that really focus on uh, dementia care and uh, noticing symptoms of dementia and these non-pharmaceutical interventions. So I think we would kind of set that as the incentive to participate is to really be, you know, that their CNAs would receive some additional dementia training and then have the intervention kind of fold over on that and say, this is, you know, one intervention in a suite of interventions that are in this non-pharmaceutical group. And after you complete the training and become certified, you would start to use this uh, with residents as appropriate. So I think we would have focused more on the nursing frontline education and then fold in the intervention um, as one example of a non-pharmaceutical treatment. Um, because I think that's where we're really, and most of these studies are really lacking is uh, there's an education gap and we're kind of throwing it on top and expecting there to be this shift without really addressing the core issue. Um, so I think we would probably realign the incentives um, and focus of the intervention that way. Thanks. So um, that's an interesting point about incentives. And I guess maybe I'll ask Brian this. I, I think in a pragmatic trial, you want to make sure that whatever incentives are there, whether it's a certification or something else, um, that it's reasonable to assume that that, inter that incentive would be present in real clinical care and not introducing some sort of research only intervention uh, incentive. Um, we often get questions, can we give in, can we provide incentives during a pragmatic trial? And again, I think you have to think about after the pragmatic trial, if that incentive is something that could happen in the real world. Do you want to comment on incentives for uh, implementation within pragmatic trials, Brian? Sure. No, it's an important point, and it's uh, an even broader point, I think, which is that all elements of the intervention need to be uh, sustainable. Uh, that um, you know, when we think about an efficacy trial, you know, very early stage, we essentially stack the deck in favor of a finding of effectiveness. We often will recruit uh, so-called healthy white males from high SES populations. Uh, we will provide not only incentives to uh, patients, uh, often to the uh, clinicians, uh, other staff, the systems. Uh, we will um, uh, use grant funds to, um, in some cases, hire staff or supervise staff, uh, provide them uh, on-site technical assistance. So all of those elements that allow us to get an estimate of under best-case scenario uh, circumstances, uh, whether this is likely to be efficacious. Uh, when we think about um, the efficacy phase, uh, you know, thinking about each of those elements and exactly as you said, whether they can be sustained, whether they can be replicated, you know, that's not to say that we shouldn't be trying ideas uh, that may not uh, be compatible with current uh, infrastructure. Uh, there may be certain services that currently are not reimbursed, uh, but if we find that they're highly effective, the kinds of regulatory and policy and reimbursement uh, uh, policy changes that would be needed might be attainable in the future. So uh, as with uh, many other issues, there, there are trade-offs. Uh, but I think the key point, though, is to consider each element of the intervention and to think about whether it is realistic, whether the external validity is present, uh, whether it can be sustained after the study ends, and if not, um, 
uh, what does that say about um, you know limitations in the external validity of the study uh, and and uh, you know obviously at minimum disclosing those when we report the results is important uh, but ideally there would be a uh, a clear explicit path to um, facilitate uh, sustainment uh, and facilitate uh, you know the ongoing continuation uh, of those um, uh, sometimes artificial supports and factors that um, uh, you know, allow the intervention to be maintained and allow it to be effective. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you all. This has been a, a great uh, discussion. I think um, as impact continues to evolve, we will also continue to learn from our experiences and challenges related to implementation in these types of uh, pragmatic trials for people living with dementia and their care partners. So I look forward to an ongoing discussion and ongoing learning and want to thank you all for your time and experience. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.